Aloha, party people. You are listening to Inside the Desert Oasis Room, episode number 193. This episode is sponsored by the Tiki Bar T-Shirt Club, where their monthly T-shirt designs pay tribute to a Polynesian bar or restaurant from days long past. Each design is available for a limited time and will never be produced again. For the collectors out there, be sure to check out their subscription program, where they offer a discounted 3-, 6-, or 12-month plan, or you can always buy shirts one at a time. For more information and to check out this month's shirt, visit TikiBarTshirtClub.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Tiki Tea, a family-owned and operated tropical drink bar in Los Angeles, California. Come get their house specialty, The Ray's Mistake, for only $6 on Wednesdays until 9 p.m. For more information, check out their website, tiki-ti.com. If you have a product, service, or event that you'd like to bring attention to, we can help. This podcast reaches thousands of listeners in over 100 countries every week. Imagine hearing your ad in this spot, just like you're hearing this one right now. Sponsor an episode and get the exposure you deserve. For more information, go to desertoasisroom.com and click on services. Today we chat with Garrett Richard. Garrett is a craft cocktail bartender and mixologist who is on the forefront of the modern day craft cocktail movement. Hear about Garrett's background, how he went from radio production to mixology, his philosophy on cocktailing, and learn some useful tips on how to make your cocktails better. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did bringing it to you. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider helping us with your support during this challenging time. Stop by DesertOasisRoom.com to check out our merch or leave us a tip. We've got pendants, t-shirts, glassware, and more. And every purchase or donation, no matter the size, is very much appreciated and helps keep this podcast coming to you every week. All righty, grab a cocktail and join us inside the Desert Oasis Room. And give it up for my friend, Garrett Richard. Garrett, aloha. Adrian, thank you for <laughs> inviting me inside the Desert Oasis. Oh, man. This is amazing. We've been trying to do this for like a year? Yeah, or, or longer? it's it, it, uh, longer for longer. sure. Because uh, my family lives here in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. I'm in New York. You, and right. whenever I come to LA, I'm tempted to do, you know, any anything cocktail related or bartending related. But, you know, for me, my family is my first priority. That's why I'm right, out here. Right. So. You know, I've just been a terrible person and canceled many times. <laughs> that's that's not yeah. on you. That's not on you. I mean, like, we're, we both have busy schedules, so yeah. uh, so it is what it is. I'm glad that we finally got to meet, though. Yeah, because I'm sure you and I have probably been in the TGT at the same time. Oh, you think? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, I just... When I go there, I'm usually... Like unless I'm meeting a friend, I'm usually just there by myself, like just taking notes and watching them work and oh, stuff. Oh, you know what? I wish you that you had sent me a note because then we could have hung out. Oh no, no, this is before we even started talking. Okay, saying, all right, all right, I, yeah, 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 gotcha. Yeah. No, I would have totally reached out at that point. Yeah. Gotcha, but uh, but I mean, it's funny. Well, now going forward, we can. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. exactly. I mean, once the you know once CGT reopens, which counting the days, right? I know, right? It's just we're, we're in this kind of weird transition point right now where we don't know the exact date it's kind of a moving target right yeah but like the light is at the end of the tunnel the light is right? at the end of the tunnel that's right that's right going over your resume for when I was doing the research for this particular interview I got to say I was like super impressed well um, I blacked out all the embarrassing <laughs> stuff so super impressed man I mean I don't even know where to start. Uh, let's start in, <laughs> y there was something that stuck out to me that said previous career in radio. What was that? Yeah, about? I mean, I, I 
I wouldn't say sh- I mean short lived in comparison to what I do now. But um, sure. so when I was going to high school, I was going to uh, Loyola in downtown LA. Oh, you and, did? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, towards the my end of junior year in high school to senior year, I interned at Clear Channel Radio. Oh yeah. Um, and their main offices are in uh, Burbank and. It's funny, I think as like a normal person just driving around, you don't realize like all the radio stations are in one building and like everyone right. knows each other. Right. Like right. the liberal talk station is next to like KFI and then right. like the pop station is next to the old person's like, you know, station. And you're just like, oh, they're all working for the same people. They all work for the same. Yeah, yeah Clear Channel is huge. Yeah. Um, but the channel I was working for um, was kind of like led me down this path. It was a lounge station. It was called mm-hmm. Fabulous 690. Mm-hmm. And it was it was on AM, which was really yeah, weird. Yeah. But they did um, a lot of standards, you know, Frank Sinatra, all that. But every once in a while, they would throw in a, you know, uh, instrumental song like Route 66, mm-hmm. you know, and Nelson Riddle and all that kind of stuff. And I loved when they would play that music. It's, it's interesting because you took a... a quite a career change going from radio to hospitality. Yeah. And particularly <laughs> mixology, how did that happen? Well, um, you know, so I did this like internship, which was really mean- meaningful. And, you know, they don't, they normally didn't take like high schoolers. So I kind of had to like really talk my way into the door. And it, okay. you know, because it was a smaller station, they were okay with me working there. And, uh, you know, then that led me to think about what, you know, I should, continue to do radio stuff in college. And the college I went to had a pretty unique radio station. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of colleges, they have the college radio where all the students work. At Fordham, where I went to school in uh, the Bronx and in New York, they had a NPR music affiliate that basically rented space from them. Mm-hmm. And the deal was that they employ students to work at this NPR affiliate. And then they have, you know, they have professional DJs, but like, a lot of the work is done by students. And I started getting into that. And actually I was doing uh, video work for them first because I liked editing video, but then I wound up working for them after college. But (laughs) to get to the answer of your question, um, I really started getting into just making cocktails for myself at home. Like as a hobby. Yeah, and I mean, the home was my dorm. And it was because the food you get in college isn't really great, right? And I was already sort of on this kick of like DIY, like okay, if the food's bad, just like learn to cook, like teach it, teach yourself. And sure. Like, I was like, you know, the ethos, the same ethos with like drinking. It was like, well, most of the drinks are bad, so maybe you have to teach yourself, teach yourself. like how to yeah. drink. Yeah. And specifically the thing that motivated me to get my butt in gear was the uh, the Ultra Lounge CDs. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. In, in the the liner notes, which, God, I sound like I'm 30 years older. Remember, kids, there used to be liner <laughs> notes with CDs, um, is, is you flip to the back, yeah. and they would have a cocktail. And I thought these cocktails were really cool, and they, like, went with the music that I was listening to. Yeah. And, you know, they, it would be, like, Highball or, you know, Tom Collins or whatever. And, I you know, I was just like, I need to maybe try some of these things yeah, out. Yeah, yeah to make the full listening experience work yeah, out. You know? Yeah, So that was your start, was was listening to those CDs and making the cocktails. Yeah, yeah, in college and, uh, you know, somewhat illegally because I was underage. And well, I, and I got to tell you, that's really all, already out of the box because the Ultra Lounge CD, CDs, that series, it was a great series. There were a, oh, it was incredible. I think there was like 30 of them or something. and But they, I wouldn't say that they were really targeted to someone like yourself in college i think they were oh not they no, were not targeted to i believe more people that were nostalgic for that right or maybe even if you had maybe a bar restaurant that had some kind of theming where that music would fit but the typical college kid is not listening to lounge music no and I, I mean the first the the my freshman year at fordham i was living with other musicians and so okay i think we did try to like one up each other with like weird things yeah and yeah, like for me yeah. i was like well i'm already into this weird stuff and like i'm just gonna continue like going down that path and i loved the ultra lounge because they did all sorts of like topics like you yeah. know like spies and right, organ right, music right. exactly and, yeah, and, and you know, it was funny to see what cocktails were paired with each CD. Right, know? they broke it down even more. So from there, I, I suppose then you thought you'd give this whole 
mixology thing a try? Yeah, uh, I was, so I was in grad school and I was working at WFUV um, as a sort of graduate assistant and, you know, a little bit more responsibility than just working as an undergrad. And there's just a certain point where this was kind of taking up more and more of my yeah, life. And yeah. I was going to more cocktail competitions and cocktail events. And I'd won like one or two competitions online and uh, one for Vive, which I'm not sure if you remember Vive. Yeah. It was the acai uh, liqueur, but it, that took me to Tales of the Cocktail like right after I graduated school. Wow. And so it was just like the bug was there. And honestly, I was like, I just need to at least give this a shot because if not, it's going to just be like a you know an itch I can't scratch for yeah. the rest of my life. It, it would always end up being a what if. But when you got into the industry, you kind of hit the ground running. I mean, you were yeah, at. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> you were at. So I'm going to read some of this stuff here. You were at Monkey Bar, and then you went to Prime Meat. Uh, based on the research, uh, you had built up a following with a. Tiki Takeover series. Is this, was this the Exotica pop-up series? This is the precursor to Exotica. Okay, precursor um, to that. Okay. But it was it was really fun. It was uh, so Prime Meats uh, for all your listeners uh, was the bar program was run by uh, Damon Bolte, who has a really great podcast uh, called The Speakeasy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but and I found him through that podcast. So actually, while I was still working in radio, oh, okay. I was listening to his show in a radio station. Yeah, very um, cool. But Prime Eats, uh, they, you know, they were really good synthesis of food and cocktails. And they had a really just badass uh, lineup of bartenders at the time when I was working there. It was like everyone's other job, yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, the Tiki Takeover series I thought was really cool because the chef at the time, the head chef of Prime Eats, he was from Puerto Rico. And he was like, I don't get to make any of the food that I'm really proud of. And... I would love to like pair that with like the little things you're making on the side when like your regulars come oh, in I love and, that. and it was awesome. You know, you know, it's funny is there's a lot of that happening in this industry, right? People not getting to make what they're proud of. And so when you're in a position where you get to do that, you really get to spread your wings and show people like, you know, what you're made of. Right. So, and a lot of that I think happened to you too with your Tiki takeover series and and then growing into all the steps that followed that right so being at happiest hour and slowly surely i know that you you had um done some groundbreaking work at slowly surely there there was a cocktail that i had read about there that that got lots of praise yeah there were i mean there were a few and it, like with with i think based on what you were just saying i think in terms of my early career i was always interested in bringing tiki to a program that maybe necessarily wasn't a tiki bar because yeah. I thought um, the metaphor I use all the time, which isn't even my metaphor, is uh, a fine dining restaurant may not be an Italian restaurant, but they always have pasta on the menu, at least one pasta dish. And mm -hmm. my thought process back, this is you know, around 2011, 2012, was all these great cocktail bars should at least have one tiki drink on the menu because it's a genre that needs to be represented and it's something that people like. And it's, it, you know, back then it was, you know, I when I jumped into bartending, I did not think that Tiki was gonna be like the next thing. I thought I really had to fight for its representation, which I did, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And a lot of other people did too in, in New York. Yeah, well, it, it's that movement and bartenders like yourself that changed the way that Tiki cocktails are being made today. It's elevated them, right? In the same way that a chef maybe will elevate the burger, right? Because there was a time where you couldn't get a gourmet burger. It was either McDonald's or, you know, In-N-Out. Yeah, maybe if you're you lucky, to, you get In-N-Out. Maybe yeah. the best burger that you'd get in a restaurant was like at an island's. But now you have chefs that are elevating that using special meat blends or special sauces or the way that they bake the bread or however they compile the ingredients. And it's the same thing. It's still a burger. But it's it's been elevated. And it's the same thing that that you guys are doing with cocktails. So, uh, like case in point, there's this blue Hawaiian that, and so a, a friend of mine was raving about this blue Hawaiian that you made. Oh, that's that, awesome! That you yeah. took that 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 the classic made by Harry Yee, and in many ways you elevated it. That you you recreated its original taste profile, 
and it, it was still a blue Hawaiian, but he said, yeah, he goes, it was still a blue Hawaiian. It still tastes like a blue Hawaiian, but it was just levels better. I mean, that's really what I'm interested in now is I think it's it's easy. It's a little different, I think, on the, the bar culture, like East Coast versus West Coast, but I'll say for for my experience, it's it's I think it's really easy to say this is my riff on X, sure, right? Sure. But it's I think a lot more difficult to say, you know, this is my Mai Tai, right? Because there's expectations that come with it. Right. And there's history that comes with it. It still has to be a Mai Tai. I mean, you can't change the Mai Tai. You can improve it, which I, that's another thing that I have here in my notes is something that you've also done with the Mai yeah. Tai, right? <laughs> Sorry <laughs> which to jump is, ahead Which there, is interesting. But. <laughs> but, but, but like, for example, this Blue Hawaii. So let's, let's talk about the process yeah. on that Blue Hawaii yeah, because absolutely. this is going to lead to a bunch of other questions that I have. <laughs> so uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is basically your approach to mixology, mm-hmm. right? And how you create your drinks, this, the scientific approach, the scientific slash chemical uh, component, right? Um, so, so let's talk about that because the drinks today. I saw a video once that happened at Tails a few years ago mm-hmm. where someone broke out the original bottle of J. Ray Nephew 17 that was used in the original VIX 44 Mai Tai. And Which they, I'm sure just was awesome. Right, they made a, 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 a cocktail with, a Mai Tai with it. And I remember, and they made it exactly by the recipe. And I remember after it was being made, there was a huge crowd around and you could see the look in everyone's faces that everyone wanted to try it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> the person who made it held it up, you know, for the camera, and it got kind of passed around. But I think people were scared to like take the the first sip because it's like, is it okay if I take the sip, or do am I not allowed to take? Yeah, the that's sip? an expensive mai tai, right? That's <laughs> an expensive mai tai, right? Made with dinosaur blood, basically. And of course, my first thought is, okay, well, you, you use the same ingredients. But the citrus is different these days, right? Um, oh, everything's different. And, and how are they making the orja? That how did they make it back then? And what's the orja that's being in, used in it now? And the curacao. And you have that one rum, but everything else, like, how is that going to change the flavor of that drink? Yeah. So were they actually making something that was authentic to what was made? What because was made? Because there's so many changes that happen. And and so the reason why I use that example is. This blue Hawaii is the understanding that I have is that you tried to recreate not the recipe, but the way it was originally intended to taste. Yeah, the idea, the spirit of it. The spirit, right? right the intention of the cocktail, right? Talk about that process. Yeah, um, well, with uh, speaking of the Mai Tai in particular, what's interesting in my research is, is you know, I've found that Trader Vic's syrups back then were super, super concentrated because he did he did an article for Gourmet where he was, you know, gave a couple recipes out. Mm-hmm. And his his uh, simple syrup was three parts sugar to one part water. I mean, that's crazy wow. sweet. So, wow. so if you think about that quarter ounce of uh, rock candy syrup in the Mai Tai, it's not it's not the same as normal simple syrup. That's yeah. very, very yeah. sweet. So but uh, is speaking of the blue Hawaii, there were a couple of things that I wanted to do. I think the big one was, you know, the big debate is whether it's the coconut version, which is the blue Hawaiian, or the uh, citrusy, you know, version, blue Hawaii. And I wanted to do something to sort of bridge the gap between the two of them. And um, I used a technique called uh, fat washing, which is something that uh, was created by uh, Don Lee, who I worked for at Existing Conditions, and that's where you take a melted fat and you put it into a spirit, and then you freeze those two things, and then the fat coagulates at the top, and then the spirit, you know, uh, goes down, and then you strain it off, and that spirit has all the, that fat flavor involved with it. And when Don Lee created it, he created it for a cocktail he did at uh, the New York Bar PDT called the Benton's Old Fashioned, which had bacon, bourbon, and maple, and you know, it was delicious. That sounds great. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, but for me, I was like, oh, we can do this with coconut oil. Um, 
you know, also vegan friendly versus uh, Benton's bacon. But mm-hmm. um, we can wash one of the spirits in the Blue Hawaii with coconut oil, and that gives it that subtle coconut flavor rather than like a huge hit of Coco Lopez or whatever. Because the real like old school Blue Hawaii, it's really not that sweet. It's a pretty citrus forward drink. And I wanted to preserve that idea is like, like multiple layers of citrus, orange, lemon, lime on top, you know, with the two different spirits. So I ended up taking, uh, originally I, I tried it with vodka first, uh, because I wanted to keep it in Harry's vision, which Harry said that you can't make a blue Hawaii without vodka and rum together. He liked that combination. And it's actually kind of smart because the vodka dries out the rest of the ingredients. Right. It's not really there right. for flavor, but there for structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found out is that because fat washing kind of strips away a lot of flavors, if you use a really light gin like Plymouth, um, the Plymouth, the juniper kind of gets uh, cut out and all that remains is all the citrusy flavors, which just go better with the blue curacao and the, you know, the lime and, and lemon. Um, so that was the big, that was, project number one and then project number two was uh that harry has sour mix in it which you know everybody's solution to you know uh, jeff does this in a lot of his books and you see this a lot in the tiki space is if you just see sour mix you go okay just use lemon and simple syrup and all that and what's really interesting nowadays in bartending is you're starting to see that people are and i'm i would put myself in this category are saying that preserved citrus actually has a really different flavor than sure, just yeah, completely. you know uh syrup and fresh lemon juice yeah, yeah. and we i worked on making a sort of a lime cordial that could work with the lemon juice and it would create this sort of like a la minute sour mix yeah um and i love it i think it's like it's kind of like fresh citrus is like you know white wine and then i would say that like lime cordial is kind of like sherry it's like they're just two different things and you know one is like super oxidized and you know has the oils from the lime and the other is really fresh and like those two things are very different yeah when you say this process that that when you're creating these flavors for lack of a better term it, it's it's just so complex, like the, the thought process for a guy like me, right? So I'm not a mixologist, right? So where does that even come from? Is that is that experience? Is that your palate? Is that is it a combination of both? I think it's I, it's definitely a combination of both. I tried to explain this to somebody recently, and I think my philosophy is. Um, I heard this great quote from somebody who worked at Apple's Apple computers, not to be pretentious, but is a quote that I think works well with what I do, which is they were saying, if you're really passionate about software, you build your own hardware. And for me, I think with a lot of cocktails, there's like the software is really the cocktail itself and the hardware is the ingredients. And I think if you have more control and more say over what your ingredients are you're not just using someone else's recipe for grenadine or whatever is that then you can go more personal into like how this cocktail is you know fits your palate and how you see it because it's not just mixology i mean it's i mean well it is mixology right It, it to the exact literal sense of the term but it's also alchemy, right? It's chemistry. It's it, it's 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 a it's an elevated way of looking at a cocktail, you know. Yeah, and, and I mean and sometimes it down, sometimes right? that happens by accident, raise a steak, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. So speaking about the palate, I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. So uh, you know, they they have these uh, palates or people that they call super tasters yeah. that have more sensitivity in their palate, and they can. They can taste out more uh, flavors and nuances and things like that in the in the foods and and things that they drink and eat. Um, is that something that I guess that like as a bartender that would really be more of a benefit than I would assume, right? I'm not sure because I know super tasters are super sensitive to like spicy things. Okay, and. Um, and unfortunately, the times we're living in, like spicy drinks, sell like crazy. So yeah, yeah. you know, I don't know if that would be a detriment to you. But uh, but what about like the using the palate, right? Can you train your palate as as a as a bartender? You yeah, think? Um, there's a there's a, a crazy 
intensive bar training, uh, yeah, bar training program called Bar Five. Okay. And it was started by Dale DeGroff and Steve Olson and a bunch of these, you know, people that basically created the cocktail revolution. And I haven't done it yet, but I've had a lot of coworkers that have gone through this process. And it is five days of your being taught what distillation is, whatever. But like they'll taste you on 10 gins. And then when you take your test, they'll they will be like, is this Tanqueray, Bayfeeder, or Plymouth? Oh, okay. And so and like everybody who goes through it, it's like they just, you know, they just took finals five times yeah, over. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. But um So it's like palate training. Yeah. Basically. I, I mean definitely. But I think with talking about the blue Y and everything, it's it's also just trying to make something that I think the preponderance of people would like that know the cocktail and are are fans of it, but also make something that people who have never had a blue Hawaii before say that this is a good drink. Right. And right. that's, you know, that can be a little hard dance to do. And some some drinks, it takes me, you know, two years to really get to something. I had a mm. totally different version of this drink that I served at Hukilau and like I will never serve that version again. And it had coconut cream in it. And like, I think looking at people's reaction to it and seeing what people's response, I mean, some people really liked it and some people hated it. and. Um, you know, I think being open to criticism is important. Sure. I mean, yeah. that's the only way you're going to grow. It's yeah. the same thing with the podcast. I get criticized positively and negatively. Some of it is just, you know, it's just bullshit. <laughs> For lack they, of a better they, term. they want it to be a call-in morning zoo show. Is that, is that the problem? Some of them want that. <laughs> Some of them want it to be... More what, prank phone calls. What they want it to be. Yeah, you know, of course. Like yeah. they say like, oh, you should concentrate more on cocktails. Well, you know, I've said it many, many times. I don't want to do a cocktail show. I mean, like that, that doesn't mean I don't want to have cocktail, cocktails and, and that that type of subject in my, my particular... Um, you know my portfolio but uh it i just i want it to be more broad than just cocktails because yeah it's, there's it's a lot a of huge yeah, yeah. universe there's a right? lot of cocktail centric shows out there i just don't want to be one of those guys i want to have uh musicians and artists and authors and entertainers uh bartenders mixologists it's all part of the tiki subculture to me you know so. yeah and i try i try to explain that all the time to bartenders who get into it it's like Look, what we do is a just a. It used to be much smaller. Is a small part mm-hmm. of a much larger thing, where there are people that are artists that don't even drink and will never come to your bar and and are you know yeah, yeah. it's you know you have to get that through people's heads yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, each one of us is just one component of the bigger picture. But speaking about these flavors of today and how people are using their palates to develop these cocktails. I'm curious about what your thoughts are with cocktails from say like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So Mm -hmm. for example, we talked earlier about how the citrus is different. Oh yeah. Right, so the drinks that were made back then are gonna taste different than the drinks that are made today. What are your thoughts about the flavor profiles of back then? Do you think that the original cocktails of the 30s and 40s and 50s would be different if we had the flavors and ingredients today available back then. How do you think that they would change? Because in my thought that you know that they're they're using what they had available to them, right? And 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 the flavor profile of what we're getting from say like the mai tai and uh, and the sidewinders fang and uh, the Singapore sling and all that it's all based on what was available to them at that time. Do you think it would be much different if the ingredients we have today were available then, or do you think it was really more of what people preferred, the flavors of what people preferred at that time? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, Actually, the cocktail writer David Wandrich has a really interesting sort of response to this, which is he was trying to figure out why the El, this was a couple of years ago, why the El Presidente wasn't a good cocktail and okay. kind of went in and did a little bit more research and figured out that that was a drink that was not made with dry vermouth, but made with a Blanc vermouth like Dolan Blanc back then. And he at the end of his article basically said, you know, if you ever look at history and say, well, those people probably just had terrible palates, you're probably missing part of the story because 
if something sold well and was well liked, it's not that everyone is just brainwashed at yeah, a certain point. Yeah. Um, and I would say with tiki cocktails, um, it's really that I think if we just were able to magically get all those ingredients, I think we would learn a lot. I think even just the ice itself in classic tiki drinks, um, when Don opened, he was using Japanese ice shavers. So he was yeah. using like kakigori machines that were shaving big blocks of ice. Wow. And the Maikai, when they first opened, had had those machines as well. And that ice is super, super wet. It's it's like the crushed ice that you have in it here. It melts so fast. Yeah. It melts so fast. So like that's why he had to mold it around the glasses, freeze it into things like the navy grog cone, because otherwise it's gonna it's gonna turn into water quickly. But in some respects, that's really welcome. Like in a one fifty one swizzle. I, I would love that type of ice because sure. 151 Swizzle kills you, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the citrus. That's definitely, that's, there's definitely some differences. Like grapefruit over time was bred to be, first of all, not white and turn, turned into pink. And in doing so, that added beta carotene to the grapefruit yeah, and yeah. it made it tarter because they knew people were going to add sugar to it. And that's the thing is that, Pink grapefruit or red grapefruit today didn't exist in the 30s and 40s. No, so it was the the, uh, the Oro white grapefruit. Yeah, right. So so cocktails back then were also made. They were all made with white grapefruit, and so now it's the other way around. Like it's harder to find white grapefruit because the red grapefruit or pink grapefruit is everywhere. So it, it's flipped. And and when you think about how GMO has played a part in the way natural flavors come from our foods. Everything has changed. All the flavors have changed in our foods. Yeah, and and you it's you have to compensate for that if you're going to try and like go to some of these older recipes, right? And so so how do you do that? How do you how do you approach that as a modern bartender making a classic cocktail? Well, luckily, I would have very different answers for you before I worked at Existing Conditions, which Existing Conditions uh, was a bar opened by Dave Arnold and Don Lee, and they wanted it to be a sequel to his original bar, which is called Booker and Dax, which um, Booker and Dax was literally a kind of experiment bar that Dave opened to prove that the things in his book, Liquid Intelligence, could actually be practical and that you could use behind the bar, because he was asked, you know, he was promoting liquid nitrogen and centrifuges and all that. But the cool thing, especially with Tiki, is that the the training I had at Existing, they taught us two things. They taught us they taught us a lot of things, but two things in relation to this question. Uh, grapefruit or a citrus or any sort of liquid can be moved into an acidic component or a sweet component if you have the right information. So with the grapefruit question, kind of depends on the drink, but there are two techniques we were taught. One is called acid adjusting, which is where you bump up the acid of a fruit or mostly citrus that is not as acidic as lemon or lime, and you move it into the lemon or lime category. Mm. And then there's another technique we were taught where it's basically you measure the inherent sugar in a juice and you turn it into a syrup. So. I've done things where I've used grapefruit as the main acidic component in a drink, like um, in the Nixon's Grog, which uh, you and I are going to consume after this. And okay. I've also turned grapefruit into a syrup, and I use that in my 1956 zombie. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. What's your thought about pairing cocktails with food? Uh, like, for example, the way they do with wine. Yeah. Or do you think that they should stand in a category on, on their own? I think some drinks pair better with food than others, for sure. Um, and I think it's I think it can be more difficult depending on you know what you're doing. I mean, I think tiki drinks sometimes. I mean, you, I'm sure you could speak to this. Some tiki drinks are marvelous with you know pork mm -hmm. and what have you. If you've been, you, I know you've been to Latitude 29. Sure. Some of the, some of the stuff that they have in the Latitude 29 menu is amazing with the like pearl diver they have and all that. And then there's some where it's just you want them on. On their own right you know? right I typically enjoy cocktails on their own I think it, it's its own type of culinary art for, for lack of a better term um, which is actually it brings me to the next question because 
There is a science to food that's taught in culinary school. Uh, yeah. yeah, right. A food science, right? Um, there, there, there are things that pair well together, that flavors that work well together, textures that work well together, and how to achieve certain things. And they teach all this in culinary school. And yet, for mixology, there is really nothing like that. It's really mostly learned in the field, right? As a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. If you're a bartender that went to bartending school, yeah, <laughs> it, there's there's a bit of a stigma that comes attached to that. Right now, yeah, I mean, it's, right, it's, and and chefs are lauded for the the culinary schools that they attended. You yeah, know? you know, I went, yeah, I went to this school, and and yeah, it shows up great on the resume. But yeah, no, it's really still an apprentice system, and I mean, that's how I learned. I was, yeah, yeah. the Monkey Bar was run by. Julie Reiner, and she has some amazing cocktail bars, uh, you know, Clover Club and Leenda in Brooklyn. And at the time when I was working for her, she actually had a tropical bar that was short-lived in Manhattan called uh, Lonnie Kai, which was based on her childhood in Hawaii. Right. And that was my favorite bar at the time. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the apprentice system, I mean, some bars go, you have to start at the bottom and move all the way up. I mean, it, it can get very intense. And I think that, yeah, that is something I think the cocktail world could probably work on. Yeah, I mean, like, do you feel that having those kind of stigmas of going to a bartending school, for lack of a better term, again, like, there is kind of no other term that's equivalent to, quote-unquote, culinary school, right? So culinary school, we're moving that particular art form forward. But bartending school... Um, like again, be, if you, if you're someone that went to bartending school, you're largely lampooned in that industry. Do you think that that's holding back the the uh, development of mixologists like you, like what you do? That's a good question. I, I I don't know how many people are going still, but I hope. And the other question is, some of those schools, like, are they using al actual alcohol? And like, I know some of them True. aren't, which is you know, which can be you know yeah. detrimental. But, um, you know, it's really funny you mentioned bartending uh, schools because I, I, I do a lot of research on Galliano. I think mm -hmm. it's a really interesting brand. Mm -hmm. um, I don't work for them, but I think it's kind of like... I love it. I think it's like the San Germain of mm -hmm. the 70s because it's like this huge brand that had like competitions and this and that. But um, Duke Donato, who is purportedly the creator of the Harvey Wallbanger and some other mm -hmm. cocktails, he had a bartending school in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And I really want to know if it's still open. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's interest. It's an interesting thought because, you know, if a chef didn't go to to culinary school, uh, he may do things that people will scoff at, and they'll just say like, "Oh well, yeah, he didn't even go to culinary school. Like, what's he doing? Like, learning on the job." But that's almost kind of that's a, that's what's expected. Right of a bartender, right? of course, yeah, and and I would say also. With, so it's just an interesting perspective, right? Yeah, and, and I mean the the bartending aspect also has the hospitality end, which in a kitchen you're not in front yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's, you're right, and and that's something that I think it can be learned, but also, um, you know, uh, you have to you have to be a giver and you have to want to take care of people because eventually people will figure out that you're just faking it. Right? And you know, and it's funny. And, and and speaking to that angle, there are schools for hospitality. There's schools for restaurant management and hotel management, and schools in like tourism industry, right? Oh yeah, a hotel school. And like all in, of that yeah. deals in hospitality. And again, it's just the bartender that if you go to school, <laughs> you're laughing, yeah, right? Yeah, we're you know we're just really on our own here. <laughs> It's a crazy thing. Wow. So, okay. So, a uh, couple other questions for you. Yeah. What, what do you think the perfect cocktail should embody? I think it's definitely about context, right? Um, and I think that's something that when you're starting out behind the bar is you, you really have to know how to read people. And, like, some people want to be open to, like, your suggestions and want to be open to... And then there are some people that like like they have something on their mind and then that's what they want. And you know, maybe unless you can't physically do it, you don't have the ingredients, you should try to make that happen for that person. And I think for a perfect cocktail, I think it's really what works in the moment. Like when we started this podcast, 
we, you know, you were saying how intimidating some of the techniques I have are. So it was like, all right, let's start simple. Let's just do yeah, a daiquiri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what worked for it. It was perfect, right? It was, it was exactly what was needed for the moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, I've never worked behind the bar. I'm just a guy who makes drinks in my home bar. And obviously... I love that you you, you work with uh, Fashionola, by the way, because I think that's I love such Fashionola. a cool... Uh, sort of uncharted territory for Tiki? Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because Fashionola was very much a staple in the early uh, drinks. Um, I think that the rise of grenadine happened when Fashionola became less and less available. And because grenadine was a red syrup, it was an easy sub at a bar for a customer who pushed a drink back and said, this is not what I ordered. It's typically red. So that's yeah. that's my theory. That's your theory, yeah. That's yeah. my theory because I, Fashionola, uh, you know, the production of Fashionola kind of dwindled in the 60s and 70s, really more like the 70s, right? Because the, the cocktails, the tiki cocktails, their heyday was 30s, 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s. But by the time the 70s rolled around, the tiki cocktail was kind of out of fashion. Yeah, so why make this syrup just for these places that are right. you know, not doing well and anymore? You don't really see fashionola on the menus anymore, but then all of a sudden you're seeing grenadine everywhere. And I think that they were starting to push grenadine into tropical cocktails because the fashionola was no longer as available. That, that Again, it's a theory of mine. It's, not, it's nothing that I read or researched on my own. It just seemed, the timing just seems that way. Yeah, and I mean, Fashionola, is, it's interesting to figure out what it is and what it tastes like. I think there's, yeah. you know, I love having those types of puzzles. Like, I love the fact that Tiki D doesn't have a cocktail book because anytime I go there, I can be like, okay, I want to I wanna do the Rubik's Cube, you know. It's funny you say that because they actually do have a cocktail book. Well, yeah, just nobody can read nobody it. Nobody can read it. <laughs> nobody can read it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. What inspires your creativity when you're behind the bar? That's, uh, I, I feel like when I was doing it, when I was doing Exotica, my, my pop-up series, um, you know, we had to do a new menu every, I, I made the decision that we were going to do a new menu every time. And I really, I didn't want to repeat styles. Like if I did like, for example, if I did a scotch or shot drink on the previous menu, we're not going to do another Scotch or shot trick, gotcha. right? Yeah. So, I mean, for the pop-up, the inspiration really was to try and move through the canon as much as possible and also to tackle problems that we saw, like um, the seventh Exotica we did at Rain's Law Room, like I really wanted to do, because we, we, we kind of have a little like spreadsheet in our head. We do a frozen drink on the menu every time. We do, you know, we have a bunch of flash blended that's given, and then we always do a stirred cocktail. and. Um, just to give some diversity, because sometimes tiki drinks can be a little same-ish, so we mm -hmm. wanted like yeah. diversity on the menu. And um, the last one we did, we really wanted to do a frozen margarita, but tiki. And we were like, well, hibiscus is part of Jamaican culture and Latin culture, and it's the official uh, flower of Maui. So, you know, we used the, our technique, the, the way we make uh, frozen cocktails, and we did that with uh, sort of margarita spec, but we had uh, hibiscus, like Jamaica flowers infused into the tequila. And, you know, so I think a lot of that comes up of like, we just, we want to see like good versions of this. We want to see the, like, what's the ideal planner's punch? Because there's like 50 versions of the planner's right, punch, right. you know? Right. Um, or like, can we revive the 1956 zombie? Because everyone loves the 34. Can we make one that is just as interesting and right, cool and right. that people will be like, oh, maybe this drink has some merit to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I have, um, we'll, we'll talk about this later because I have a challenge for you. Oh, speaking man. about all of that. On the spot. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's funny because I texted somebody about this last night because I was excited to have you on the podcast. And I said, you know, I, here's what I want to, I want to ask him, I want to, one of the things I want to challenge you with is I wanted to see if, how open and willing you would be to create a new cocktail for the Desert Oasis. Oh, room. that sounds awesome. Yeah, I would but love I had, that. I had, I had a few, yeah. I had a few things in mind for that cocktail. So I wanted it to be equally sweet, equally tart and equally spirited. So obviously that's, balanced. That's, that's the language of my tribe. <laughs> right. Obviously balanced. I wanted it to, to have a clean, fresh, 
body and 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 you know the it, the way that it carried itself, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be clean and fresh, with a dry finish on the palate. Yeah. Right. Dry. Nothing that lingers. I think that the saline would would accomplish that because I I feel like this has a drier finish than the other one that didn't have the saline. Yeah. I yeah. I could be wrong. We but. so uh, before we started rolling here, we we I wanted to up front uh, talk to Adrian about salt being an important part of cocktails. That was something it was, that was in my training and existing and really it's kind of ruined me for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's like, I love a pinch of salt in all my cocktails. And we did a little challenge where we tasted a daiquiri one way and we tasted a, a, a daiquiri without, with and without saline, yeah. which is salt water. And um, yeah, no, salt, salt water is really cool because it, you know, it's wildly different in many drinks. Like if you have a cucumber drink, it pops the cucumber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a Manhattan, it helps the well, vermouth out a lot. And I know? love I love the example you use is like, look, if you salt your food, right? Like, let's talk about that cucumber. If you put a little a little dash or sprinkle on a fresh cucumber or on a on a piece of steak or on so your egg, on your so eggs better. or yeah. like right it enhances the flavor yeah, right? <laughs> yeah so, so it's kind of no duh so you're right yeah right so so there's that so the clean dry clean and dry, yeah. clean and dry finish uh and then garnished with something fresh like a lime shell or mint or something that's something that's yeah again, I, love, I, I like the i, I the, love the, citrus shells the texture of something fresh and it's funny that after i described all of this i wrote it all down and i looked at it and i thought this looks like an original mai tai right yeah that that is that is i would say equal, an, equal ideal parts, mai tai right? like an ideal mai tai an ideal mai tai there's a great mai tai in my opinion the best mai tai in la came out of a little bar called here's looking at you you know what I I Alan who ran that place he gave me my first bar job but oh. I didn't take it because I got the job at WFUV in the Bronx. Gotcha. I gotcha. literally did one shift at and he was running Kanya at the time okay. in downtown LA okay. but I'm so mad I didn't get to go to Here's Looking at You. Unfortunately they closed but that Mai Tai is being served at their other restaurant called uh, All Day Baby which is just on the street oh, from, from okay. TVT, so you can still yeah. get it. And in my opinion, it is equally balanced, tart, sweet, and boozy, but uh, fresh, light, uh, dry finish. Uh, I mean, it's exactly, and I thought, so am I just describing like <laughs> the, an, an original Mai Tai? But that it, it's funny because when you think of all those components, right, all the things that I think are perfect in a cocktail, it lands back to that. It lands back to that 44 Mai Tai, which is uh, yeah. I and kind I mean, of you could even like depending on the type of person you are. I think that's the same. That type of description is the same for a gimlet, sure. margarita. Like if you're a tequila person, like a perfect paloma or margarita has some sweetness, has some tartness. It's yeah. clean, and yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, when we're re our, you know doing R and D at for anything, like I I tell all the time to my the people I work with, like uh, Jimmy Colon at Rain's Law Room and other people is like, like it needs to be clean, it needs to be sessionable. Yeah. Like you need to have more than one and like want to pay for it. So yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great perspective. So th that sounds like it can be challenging because, you know, how do you, how do you create something new with that in mind, right? Yeah. Because there's so much that exists like that already. So uh, almost done here, I got a few more questions for you. I'm curious, being in the position that you're in today, what do you think the future is of cocktailing, bartending, mixology, that that type of stuff? What changes do you think will happen in the future, especially with changes in the spirits industry? Do you think that will will uh, affect the future of mixology? Yeah, uh, I mean, we've obviously seen a lot of regulations like pulled out because of COVID, and you know we're cities that suddenly couldn't sell to go oh, now yeah. could sell to go and you know are those going to stay you know are those going to stay like where i am in new york we you know uh bars can sell 750s of 
full cocktails and like uh, wow yeah so places like uh dante in the west village they you know they have a very extensive negroni and martini wow menu. i suppose i shouldn't be surprised by that because the maikai were selling gallons <laughs> yeah right yeah which they that's the value right there is, is just get a gallon of rum barrel yeah they were selling gallons of rum barrel and black magic and... yeah like that could stick around and like that would completely change the way because then bars have to figure out how can something stay for five days and still taste the right, way it did on day one? Right. Which that was something we were playing a lot with at existing conditions right. is we made a lot of, well, first of all, we had a vending machine. Wow. In the front. Yeah. Which was an idea from our owners. And those vending machines had martini, Manhattan, and they had a version of uh, Don Lee's drink called the Cinema Highball, which was a rum and Coke that was uh, washed with popcorn. So it was a popcorn oh, rum and Coke. But the thing is, is like, you have to make sure that those things that are in the bottle in the vending machine yeah. taste good yeah, you know, I, 10 days from now. I can see that being a challenge because citrus, for example, starts to oxidize after a certain period of time. I know that citrus, like it freshly squeezed, is really the way to go because after like 15 minutes, it starts to oxidize. Yeah, so you have to you have to kind of get around that. And like we we had a couple bottled cocktails that were carbonated mm-hmm. and um, we had like a carbonated strawberry margarita we had a couple drinks like that paloma things like that and we couldn't put the lime or the lemon in it because it would spoil the the right the, the, right. the batch so right. we would do it at the last minute so you know some of these to-go cocktails they may just have to like give you a little lime or or right right you know, give them instructions that say add the lime add this much lime when you take yeah it home. just squeeze it squeeze yeah, a wedge in yeah, there and you're yeah. good to go you know when i think about and this is kind of what i'm alluding to when i think about the way that Cocktailing, bartending, mixology, all that has changed over the years. It's its changed tremendously just over the past decade. And then go back two decades, go back three decades. Now, if we go back three decades, we're back into the 90s where everything was pretty much trash, right? And if we go back, say, like 100 years, we weren't even allowed to drink yet. We were in prohibition, <laughs> right. right? So, So let's talk about that. So, like, what do you think all of this will look like you know, bartending, cocktailing, mixology, all that stuff. What do you think it'll look like 100 years from now? This, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know if I can speak to 100 years, but I'll say like the next 10 years, I think are really going to be interesting because okay. um, I think there is now this, like you're talking about the 90s and especially early 2000s. I think what bartenders had to do to convince consumers to make a good drink was like use real fruit, yeah, squeeze yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're at a certain point, and like I encounter this all the time, and is now there are things that are happening behind the bar that aren't necessarily needed for the consumers to know about that are more for profitability and flavor. And like, you know, we were talking about like preserving stuff where somebody could do it at home, but is it necessary? Like, and I'll give you a good example is um, on one of our menus, we wanted to make a like, kind of very old school, like 19th century style, old fashioned type drink, but using tiki flavors. And um, in doing so, we had to clarify passion fruit syrup and make it, or passion fruit and make into a syrup. And then, you know, we bottled the whole thing and we would just pour it out of a bottle and this, this and that. Do consumers need to go through all that at home? Maybe they should just come to the bar to have that because it's a sure. lot of work. Well, here's why I'm. Well, here's why I say a hundred years. So, I alluded to that a hundred years ago we couldn't even drink here in the United States. We yeah. were we were in prohibition, and that was the rise of moonshine and whiskey and, or I should say, moonshine and speakeasies. And today, at least in the past decade, the trend has been to put a speakeasy at the back of your bar. And people like the secret entrance and like the sitting in a place that nobody else knows about. Oh, yeah. La Descarga right? in L.A. I think is one right. of the coolest secret entrances the, ever. There, there's there one and, and there's quite a few out here. There's the Blind Rabbit and there's uh, the Black Antler Club. And, and I could go on and on and name a whole bunch of them out here. And even across the country, right? There's there's a bunch in Phoenix and there's a bunch in, in Northern Cal. And, and so 100 years from now, maybe they would be duplicating what's happening today, right? Just like what the speakeasies are today is what happened 100 years ago, right? So maybe they, they'll they say 100 years from now, oh yeah, they were clarifying 
passion fruit, you know, and, and so, or they were yeah. fat washing their, their spirits or they were, you know, so I'm curious if like what we consider, I don't know, trendy or, or uh, the norm or whatever. I don't, I don't know what the right could term be is. retro in a hundred years. It could be in a yeah. hundred years, something that's really special that people are trying to yeah, re- replicate, replicate. Like, right? Yeah, and the Je- the Jeff Berry of the 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 twenty nineties. Right, because because uh, we may not <laughs> we may not have in a hundred years some of the spirits that we're enjoying today. Just like you know, fifty years ago, we started to see the the death of fashionola. Now we're seeing a lot of people replicate that that blend. Right, oh, Adrian, it's happening right now. Like, right? like Kanye Bravo is yeah, gone, yeah, and yeah. you know, I had a and, ton- that's, and that's what I'm getting at. I yeah, guess. I had yeah. a ton of recipes with Kanye Bravo, and that, now I have to like, oh, where right. do, what now, do I now what you do? Have I do? Adjust it. Now yeah. you have to adjust you know, it. It's yeah. funny. It's funny though. Like you see Kanye Bravo every once in a while in a total wine. The seven seems to hang out, which. If you see a seven, a Kanye Rava seven, buy it. It's delicious. Um, but you know, uh, to answer your question a little bit further, I think actually a bar a hundred years from now, a lot of the work is going to be invisible because okay. at existing conditions, mo- like there were some cocktails we had that were super labor intensive, where we used liquid nitrogen, we'd freeze herbs, and you're muddling it, and it's like this whole to do. But then there were others where all the work was done hours ago before we opened and it was simply opening a bottle uh pouring from a bottle but you know that was like two three hours sometimes 24 hours worth of work and i think you will see more and more bars implement those things because one the drinks are consistent they're delicious and um people can have a better time because they're not waiting 15 minutes for a cocktail and it's it's not sacrificing any flavor you know so you could have like one person working a big bar where like maybe they make a few things but like everything else is automated I mean you know who knows how far it could go okay so what's one piece of advice for someone uh, maybe for the budding mixologist or Mm -hmm. even someone like me who's a home bartender what's one piece of advice that you could give to us that's starting out or even let's just say that the general person who likes to serve friends in their bar what should we all uh, what what's a piece of advice you should give to each one of us? What what should we have in our bars, or what should we uh, yeah. be versed at? Um, I would say the first thing, and I think this applies to home bartenders and bartenders, is uh, be open to different styles. Is I think sometimes people can get locked into like I'm I'm a this person, mm-hmm. and um, so like if you're in a tiki, get a book that has nothing to do with it because cocktails oddly reference each other and sometimes unknowingly sure. reference each other and like if you're someone that loves you know uh jeff barry's books or martin kate's books like get vintage and uh forgotten uh cocktails by ted hay and like l- look at that type of stuff because like i've equally gotten inspired by non-tiki drinks and then brought some of those things into tiki cocktails gotcha. so i would say i would say from like conceptual standpoint that um <laughs> Uh, to salt your drinks yeah um and you know uh it can be a little bit of a pain but like i you know i talk about this with some of some of the guys that work at like speakeasy places in new york like getting good ice is not too difficult nowadays like thanks to like silicone molds and things like do some research on especially like any of the bars that are run by Richard Bacato. Um, he has a place down here called Bar Claxon. Like just talk to them about ice because it really does make a huge difference in your cocktail. It's like sometimes it's 90% of how you perceive a drink. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Well, we've reached the one hour mark. Right? Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I am honored that you took the time to drive out to the Desert Oasis room and let us pick your brain and ask you all of these questions. Yeah, I'm going to Airbnb it next time. No, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can stay here. Uh, uh, before we wrap, I want to ask you about the future of Garrett Richard. What what is uh, what's the future of Garrett Richard? Is there anything that you're working on today that we can talk about, and what will we see from you tomorrow? Yeah, I um, I can't reference anything specifically, but I will say um, what I working on is kind of combining my two lives that were going on before COVID happened, which is, you know, a couple days a week, I'm working in a bar that's doing crazy 
liquid nitrogen, hot pokers, sciencey stuff. And then, you know, I have my pop-up that's really retro and vintage and is tiki. And I want to combine those two things. And I think move the understanding of what tiki cocktails are forward and, I, and not just do it for, you know, bartenders or like high-minded consumers. Like I would love to share information that is accessible to a lot of people. I love that. Well, whatever it is that you're working on, I am excited for that. I'm a, I'm a fan of your work. I've, I've said to other people that I believe that you're the future of the, the tiki cocktail movement. So uh, we just got to keep it moving forward. That's it. And you yeah, know, if I we make it. mistakes, we just, you know, we just delete them from Instagram, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And speaking of Instagram, if our listeners want to follow you or want to find out more about what you do, do you want to throw out your social media yeah. and, and, and if you have a website or anything like that? Throw I'm out all your mostly plugs? on Instagram uh, and I will respond fairly quickly unless I'm behind a bar, which isn't right now. Uh, so, <laughs> Garrett, uh, so my handle is at Garrett J. Richard um, on Instagram and it's G-A-R-R-E-T J. Richard. So Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. And for all our listeners out there, if you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Desert Oasis Room and you want to get more from our friend Garrett Richard, we're going to do a couple cocktail videos right now. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah, so we're going to put those up on the YouTube. You can check those out at youtube.com slash Polynesian Pop. And if you want to listen to our archive or, or anything like that, you want to get on a, a future episode with us, hit up our website, desertoasisroom.com. You can also follow us on our social media at Desert Oasis Room or at Polynesian Pop, which is my personal Instagram, which is actually more active because I don't really post a whole lot on the Desert Oasis Room page unless I've got something to sell, like a tiki <laughs> mug. <laughs> so got to pay the bill somehow. Right, right. Follow us at, at Polynesian Pop, and I'll put all the links for everything that we're doing, the YouTube videos and, and Garrett's uh, profile and, and the stuff that he's doing. We'll put it all in the description below. All right, well, with that said, we're going to make some cocktails. So we're going to bid you adieu. And until then, cheers and aloha. Thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, Garrett. thank you, Adrian. I appreciate it. All right, party people. Cheers and aloha. Mm -hmm.